0: So, Jonah's on the beach. We'll leave him there for just a minute as we open in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your Word. I pray, Lord, that it would um, it would meet our hearts, that we would be able to learn from it the lessons you have for it. It is not just dry history, but it is life and it is uh, wisdom that we can apply for eternity. We just thank you for this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what Jonah looked like when he got, uh, you know, kind of puked back up onto dry land, it says. Um, you know, there's speculation as the condition of his clothing, condition of his skin. We can speculate on his smell, you know, like a fish market, probably. The point is, and this is a big point, that... Jonah was figuratively dead. And now he's standing alive back on the shoreline on dry ground. At Jonah, we know that he was figuratively dead because in chapter 2, verse 2, he says of himself, from the depth of Sheol, he says he cries out. That's... That's a picture of death. That's the grave. That's the, the ground. And now he's alive on dry ground above the ground. And this is a truth that's central to both this story and actually Christianity as a whole. This event becomes a picture, both implied and overt, for a major... Doctrinal truth. Ooh. Pretty bold setup, right? <laughs> well, that's what you got to do, you know, in the in the pro league, when you're dealing with uh, Super Bowl Sunday, you got to talk big. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to promise big there. Keep that in the back in your mind. Now, we don't know where uh, the fish delivered Jonah, the sub-Uber, <laughs> get my reference there, uh, delivered him, but you know, probably somewhere on the northeastern shores of the Mediterranean, um, Syria, kind of the north of Syria where it meets with Turkey there. And then uh, we get into Jonah three, verse one. That is a little small. Well, not too bad. I apologize for that. I thought you had bigger screens. I guess. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise. Oh, that was last week. Sorry. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Now, this is different from the first commission. Subtly. Well, less subtly. It's quite different. The first commission, just as a comparison, says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for the wickedness has come up before me. The instruction was just, Go cry against it. This instruction is, uh, Proclaim to it the proclamation, which I am going to tell you. Now, <clears throat> I, I think this is significant. This is kind of Dave's opinion. That the second commission, he's told specifically, I'm going to tell you what to say. And this may be, I think it's likely, that this is a way of God dismissing one of two objections Jonah has to going to Nineveh to begin with. I think Jonah has two Uh, problems. First is the Ninevites were brutal, legendarily brutal people, completely degenerate. And it would have been just knees knockingly frightening to um, to go there and give them bad news. Right. And, you know, Jonah could be thinking, what if I say the wrong thing? and i could get i i could say something that's going to get me tortured in some horrific way however with the second commission jonah hears from the lord that he doesn't have to worry about what to say god is going to give him the words and i think that jonah is thinking if god is going to give me the words it reduces the chances of me essentially putting my foot in my mouth and it will prevent the Ninevites from cutting off my foot and shoving it in my mouth. You know, which is not unusual for the kind of b- brutalism that they exercised in Nineveh. So that that kind of answers that objection. The, section obje- the second objection is coming next week. Where's Tim? Is he here? He's not here. Well, wherever you're at, Tim... You're welcome for the setup. <clears throat> so now you have to come next week and find out what the second objection is. So Jonah arose and we're in verse three. Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah takes off toward the city. If it was the shores of northern Syria that the fish deposit him in. That's a 500 mile journey along the trade routes. Maybe two, three months just to walk there. Um, and Nineveh is in modern day Mosul, Iraq. And I think uh, we've got a picture of it later. Maybe we have it now. Yep. There it is. Google Earth. And you'll see this up here. This is Syria uh, right here. Here's Iraq, Jordan, uh, Israel. This is all Turkey up here uh Diyarbakir, this is the area that had that horrible earthquake I actually was in uh, my wife and I were in Diyarbakir about 15 years ago and it's just the the destruction is is just horrible right there but here is uh Mosul uh Iraq that's where Nineveh was ancient Nineveh and <clears throat> next now, uh, Jonah went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Well, wait a minute. He had 500 miles. What's that? That's not a three days walk. Well, here is a picture of, oh, this is horribly um, obscure here. There, If you look really close, there's a circle right there that the circumference of this circle is 60 miles. This would be, this is Mosul right here. And this would have been kind of what we'd call the greater metropolitan area of Nineveh. For a city-state to control this area that's a that en- encompasses a circumference of about 60 miles. Now, 20 miles at that time, so many stadia, was well known as what... Um, A man could walk in a day. So they're telling you the size of the greater metropolitan area of Nineveh was about 60 miles. Some of the commentators say it's a a pentagram shape, some uh, an uh, an oblong shape. Well, let's just call it a circle around uh, the city of the Tigris River here. And it's uh, about 60 miles. So, a three days walk around it. Just telling you, that's not necessarily that he went three days walk around it, that's just telling you the size of the city. Verse four, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. Well, let me show you something back on Google Earth here. Here's this, here's this, uh, circumference. Now, what's the radius of a circumference that's sixty miles Of 60 miles. The radius is 10 miles. What's from one edge of the circle to another? It's the radius times 2. It's 20 miles. What's that? One day's walk. Now, I know this probably wasn't an exact circle, but something fairly close. And that's how city nations or city states at that time would develop. They would start with some kind of fortress or a kingdom, a palace, a a fort, a a walled city, and they would expand out fairly logically and evenly from there because they wanted to control the area. Now, it made sense that it would probably be somewhat oblong because it would have followed the river. But there you are. So that whole walk, you know, ten days walk, or uh, three days walk, one day walk, Kind of makes sense, I hope, now. Verse 4. And then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Obviously, this is what God had told him to say 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Uh, it's a message that had, God had him deliver. Short to the point. Uh, a negative message. About judgment, no reason given, no equivocation, just 40 days and you're done for. There are some assumptions, I think, that we can make here. Ninevites would most likely know who and what nationality, well, not necessarily who, but what nationality, at least, Jonah was. And they would know, here's a Jew from Israel, um, <clears throat> Uh, he's speaking with a Jewish accent. The manner of dress uh, and culture would proclaim his country of origin. And even though it's likely that he's changed his clothes or got new clothes in that 500-mile walk, he would still select clothing, uh, tie it, twist it, put it on in a way that proclaimed that he was Hebrew. And that his nationality would have been known. And not only that but the people all throughout the Middle East at that time knew what a prophet was and the work of a prophet and the kinds of things a prophet said. This is the kind of thing that a prophet says. And so they would know, recognize almost instantly here is a Jewish prophet proclaiming in in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. And And this would have actually been kind of a jaw-droppingly surprising thing that here, the Ninevites, the, the brutal, the uh, authoritarian, the militaristic uh, Ninevites, all very proud of the violence that they can bring against any other country. Here's this lone Jew walking down the street saying, "For 40 days you're going to be destroyed or overthrown. And that would be such a surprise. In spite of the fact that they could recognize that he's a Jewish prophet. Like, wow. And it really achieved an amazing result. Probably one of the most, um, the greatest examples of a revival ever recorded in history. Verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Soteriology 101. Soteriology. I say words like that. It makes me sound smart. It's a study of being saved. It's kind of a religious, you know, Bible school type thing. Soteriology 101. How is a person saved in the scriptures? Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. It's all the same. How is a person saved? They believe in God. Well, what specifically do they believe? That what God has revealed to them is true. <clears throat> this is Genesis 16. 1. It starts right out. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's from the very first book, Genesis, all through the New Testament. Paul makes huge points on this. And James does not disagree with this. He adds a a facet to it, but he still agrees with it. But here's another thing. What's the external proof for our benefit, not God's, for our benefit? What's the external proof of that you have actually believed in God? This is something to expect. Well, Paul answers this in Acts chapter 23. He's before King Agrippa. He's in custody and he's making a case before King Agrippa. And he says, So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the regions of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God Performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Again, it doesn't save you. Deeds do not save you. They proclaim that you have been saved. Important. Uh, This is the subject of much of uh, John's first epistle. Is the point of loving, showing love to your brother. You've got to show it. You've got to act it out. And if you're not acting it out, the whole point, you may not be saved to begin with. The acting out doesn't save you. It proves that you were saved. As a young police officer, many of you know that I was a police officer for 30 years. As a young police officer, um, back in the 80s, the dark ages, when dinosaurs roamed the earth. (laughs) uh, I responded to a burglary at an elementary school. And as I was getting out there, there's the broken door, broken window, whatever. And 16-year-old kid comes running out, carrying, you know, one of the old-style computers, probably just a monitor or something. Drops it, takes off running. I was never built for speed. And I started chasing after him, and I wasn't going to catch him. And uh, I did something very TV-land at that time in my kind of my rookie excitement— what did I do? Stop or I'll shoot. Yeah. Stop or I'll shoot. He didn't stop. Uh, we did actually catch him about 15 minutes later. And I went up to him. I was so angry, you know, out of breath, you know. And I said, didn't you hear me? And he said, yeah. I said, did you know I was a cop? Yeah. He said, why didn't you stop? I didn't think he'd shoot he knew who I was he didn't believe me that's the difference yeah there's God he says this and that I acknowledge there's God Bip, yeah he's God he may have created the world I, I understand all this I don't believe he says what he's going to do it's a difference I'm not God <laughs> thank goodness <clears throat> So, for whatever reason, back in Nineveh, the people thought, he's going to shoot. They believed the message of, of Jonah. And they put on, they called a fast and put on sackcloth. That's a universal, doesn't matter the religion of, uh, of the entire Middle East, uh, a universal sign of mourning of humility and uh, religious penitence. And a ripple takes place uh, from Jonah. As Jonah's walking through the city, you just see this like an infectious ripple as people uh, mention over and over the message that they heard from Jonah. And they have this uh, reaction, this same reaction over and over. And finally, the message and the phenomenon of repentance reaches the palace. <clears throat> and it says when the word this is uh, verse six, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. so the king and there 's a dispute in among uh, scholars what the king 's name was, um, not very important. It, it, it was important the, the text would have mentioned it. But he does something very counter-kingly. He follows along with what everybody else is doing, believing Jonah's message, and even takes it a step further. He, he does the sackcloth thing and the fasting thing, and he sits on ashes. What that is, that goes beyond just the, the mourning and humility. That is... Abject loss and grief. That's what somebody does when they've lost everything is you sit on ashes to display your utter grief. And then, uh, in the midst of being clothed in sackcloth and sitting on ashes, this humiliation the humility, he gathers his scribes and his nobles around him and he writes a proclamation. And that is in verse 7. He issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let a man, beast, or herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly... That each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Now this proclamation, I read it and it has a desperate feel to it. A last chance, a Hail Mary kind of thing. Another little football reference. You know, you catch that. I'll point it out when you're supposed to, like, be amused by something. The king is convicted. He's like a deer in the headlights, overwhelmed by this burden of grief and shame that yesterday he probably didn't even know he had. Didn't realize. Did he know why the Hebrew God wanted his city overthrown, even though it's not stated in Jonah's proclamation? Of course he knew why. He knew exactly why the Hebrew God would want him destroyed. Back to verse 8. That each may turn from his wicked way and the violence which is in his hands. Wickedness, violence. That pretty much encompasses it all. Um, This is like a man getting caught going 120 miles an hour. I always use cop references. It's kind of like all I got. Man getting caught doing 120 miles an hour. When he gets pulled over, he doesn't have to ask the cop, you know, what would you pull me over for, officer? He knows exactly why I got pulled over. And the king knew it too. All the cruelty, the barbarism, the immorality, the debauchery, it's all true. No justifying it, no denying it, no pointing the finger. Putting everything on two words. And these are an amazing two words here. Uh, what the, how the king responded based on these two words. Who knows? Who knows? Let's take a chance. It's our only chance. A, a, a lifeline. That is the only thing to grasp in these times when I, I just feel overwhelmed by not just any old sin, but the weight of probably thousands of deaths, murders, tortures, rapes, whatever it might be, is on this king's shoulder. And he says, Who knows? Maybe God is big enough to forgive. Well, um, we know what happens. Verse 10. When God saw their deeds that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them. And He did not do it. A 360 degree turn in just a moment here. And I want you again to think back to the mind of that king and the weight of the sin on that king. And what he has caused. The misery that his hand, his orders, his previous proclamations have caused. This guy... Is like beyond our worst, you know, modern history serial killer, Hitler, Stalin, whatever you want. He's rolled into one, and he reaches a point in his life and he says, "Who knows?" And God says, "It's over." I mean, you know, the destruction is over. You have you have relented because why? He believed God, and what did he receive? Righteousness in a moment. That is amazing. This is just. <laughs> now, there are some passages of scripture which can present some difficulty in that it looks like God is changing his mind. This happens a couple of times in Genesis. And where it looks like God said he's going to do or God intends to do something, something happens. God uh, doesn't do it, says, I, I don't want to do that anymore, and then does something else. And it's, we scratch our head a little bit. This is actually not one of those passages. Why? I want to be very carefully. The calamity which he had declared. God just gave a warning. He didn't say he was going to do something. Now there are passages that we struggle a little bit. This is not one of them. This is God's just giving a warning, and just giving a warning is okay. You know, uh, just like the sign on the side of the road: "Speed checked by radar." Uh, again, going back to cop references. That's all I got. Kind of a two-dimensional person here, but. It's just a warning. It's not gonna say every time you go over the speed limit, you're gonna get a ticket. And if every time you go over the speed limit by one mile an hour and you don't get a ticket, does that mean the, the law doesn't exist? That doesn't mean the law is not right? No. Maybe you got pulled over for doing ten over or five over or something like that. The cop says, I'm just gonna give you a warning. Is the cop now outside of the law? No. The, the laws there is a warning. And so that's what's happening here. This is not a problem. <clears throat> and uh, and also, you have to take God as all of God who He is. And uh, He is full of attributes, the attributes of grace and mercy. And there is time, back then, right now, God can operate in His grace and mercy to anyone He wills. Now, there is a time when that will be withdrawn. We see that from Scripture in future events. But right now, and back that 4,000 odd years ago, God was operating and His character is, is defined by grace and mercy as well as justice. We know that from Micah seven eighteen who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy psalms eighty six uh, five through nine For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant. In loving kindness to all who call upon you, give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplication. In the day of my trouble, I shall call out to you and you will answer me. For there is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. And this is, I I think, a critical part where the author of the Psalms here is maybe even thinking back to this event. No, he wouldn't be is looking forward to this event prophetically. And saying, "All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name." So what? It's, uh, every sermon, at the end of the sermon, comes the question. So what? You know That was an interesting story, Dave, captivating in a way. You know, good ending, few twists and turns. You know, it's time to get up and walk out of the theater, having been entertained. So what? Jonah fled from God, uh, God brought him back to go at it again. And, uh, you know, here's the kicker about Jonah's attitude. It still really wasn't fixed. Next week. You're going to learn more about that. <clears throat> if your hearts are not really in it, you know, we feel that at times, right? You know, we get this instruction. We've been told to we'll read your Bible, pray, talk about the Lord, do what's right. I don't feel like it. Do it anyway. Um, parable that Jesus had, Matthew 21. Farmer had two sons, right? Told the first son, go out in the field and work. Son said, no. That's a bad attitude, right? No. And then later the son, oh, Right. and he goes out in the field and works. Second son, son, number two, go out in the field and work. Yes, sir, dad. No. Slinks off. Who's the hypocrite? Son number two, who is not a hypocrite and obedient. The one that initially said no, didn't want to do it, went and did it anyway. That's an important lesson. Your heart's not in it. Jonah didn't want to go for a couple reasons, even refused. But he decided to be obedient in the end, even after kind of being spanked and swallowed by a fish and spit up and all that humiliation. Uh, And I think, where did this happen? Because there's a lot of uh, young people I've spoken to over the years and I've been, over the last 40 years, been involved, both my wife and I, in, in, in youth ministries. And received this attitude, well, why aren't you going to church? Why aren't you reading your Bible? Well, I don't want to. I don't feel like it. Um, and if I were to go, it would just be putting on a face. And it would be hypocrisy. No, it's not hypocrisy. It's obedience. Feelings change. I, you know, it's really our fault. Those of us who, you know, led worship music in the 80s and 90s. All these Jesus is my boyfriend songs. Uh, you know... And the feelings. Oh, my feelings. And sometimes we convince a generation of people that they've got to follow their feelings. They've got to be true to their feelings. That's garbage. Be obedient to God. That's what you have to do. <clears throat> feelings come and grow. Feelings are great. Wasn't that great this morning? I had rejoined Jesse up here praying about their kids and their family. That was exciting. And it, and it wells up a great feeling. It did for me. Wonderful. But feelings come and go. Stay obedient to God. <clears throat> sackcloth and ashes. Keep that sackcloth in the closet. You're going to need it sometimes. We all do. King of Nineveh is a textbook case of what to do when caught. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter the sin you got caught in. Hang your head and take it. Accept the grief. Accept the sorrow. Accept the heartache that your sin caused. Sackcloth and ashes. Call out to God to turn from that wickedness. Personally, in the quietness of your room, your car, whatever, feel the shame of your sin and call out to God to help you turn from it. And know, believe it, as the psalmist said, Lord, you are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all, not just the first four times, the first ten times, all who call upon you. What a message. Do what the king did. Risk it all on God. That's kind of the third one there. Who knows? Risk it all on God. The king took a wild bet on what he didn't know about God and he won. Who knows? God knows. He is worth your obedience. He's worth your trust. He's worth your life. If you've never... Young or old, believed in God, now is the time. Now is the time to put it all on Jesus Christ. I told you about that major doctrinal truth in the beginning of the story. Well, here it is. Jonah was in the deep, a picture of death, and Jonah was miraculously placed on dry ground, a picture of resurrection, back to life. Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 16:4, said an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. What is that? Death and resurrection. Romans 6 uh, verses 4 through 5 Therefore we have been buried with him that's Jesus Christ through baptism into death so that As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Jesus Christ was crucified for the sins of the world. Remember, God is merciful and full of grace, but he's also a just God. And how do you mix those all together? Well, you do it in Jesus Christ. God's justice can be borne out in punishment for every single sin that ever happened on the planet. It's borne by Jesus Christ on the cross. And it led to his death. That's the penalty for sin. But he could die for me in my place, take on my sin. He who committed no sin. But what happened three days later, the third day? Back on the shore, standing upright. Resurrected from the dead. And so this is the implied uh, type of Jonah's life. Is that we are Jonah condemned for our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion, thrown into the sea and in Sheol, the place of, the, of death, of the grave, hopeless. And then, God miraculously intervenes, and here we are in spirit, alive forever. Now this body, but just this body is going to die if the Lord doesn't come. But my spirit is like Jonah standing on the shore ready to serve God and be given, and has been given new life. Now we're going to pray, but with such a message, there's got to be somebody here who has never decided to, who knows, and place your bets all on God and follow Him. Now is the time. I'm not talking about later today or anything. Right now is the time. Or maybe there's somebody else. You've made that decision, but through sin, uh, disobedience, hard times, whatever, you've kind of fallen away and you need to come back and get put back on that shore with a mission in front of you. There are people here that need that. I'm gonna ask some of the leaders to stand up and I want you to look around right now and, and see these are people that come and either report that you have, you have made the decision or talk to further about what needs to happen. These are Jonahs who can tell you, uh, give you a great message. Maybe more than Jonah. Cause, We've got some smart guys over there. I see Andy who went to school with back in Bible school. So I try to impress him with some of the big words because uh, he probably knows I just went to the beach most of the time while I was there. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your wisdom, your grace, your mercy, and your justice. I thank you, Lord, that our sins can be forgiven. And, Lord, I pray that if anyone here needs to... Put their trust in you right now that they would. I believe in you. I believe in what you say and that you will do it. That you will condemn sin unless it's been already paid for by Jesus Christ. That you will forgive completely regardless of the sin, the background. Help us all to believe in that, Lord. And to be back On the shore, with our mission before us, wanting to serve you and see what amazing things you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.